Welcome to the second series of Ethics for Advisors. I'm Matthew Smith, and I'm Head of Retail Content at Conexus and Editor of Professional Planner. In this latest series, we have engaged ethics experts and practitioners to talk through real-life ethical scenarios advisors encounter in their everyday professional lives with a focus on how advisors and practice owners are implementing ethical practices in their businesses. How individuals act or react when faced with an ethical dilemma will come down to a combination of factors including their backgrounds, experiences, education, situational and environmental factors. We've asked advisors, you guys out there, to submit real-life ethical scenarios you may have faced, both client-facing and dilemmas relating to employment structures or situations with the intention of unpacking these in light of FASIA's Code of Ethics. This podcast is proudly brought to you by IOOF Advice, who are committed to delivering leading professional development programs. I'm joined today by Dr. Catherine Hunt, Program Advisor and Lecturer, Accounting, Finance and Economics at Griffith Business School at Griffith University on the Gold Coast, and Nadal Danoon, Director of Prosperity Financial Services. Good afternoon. Hello. Good afternoon. Great to uh, have you both on this call and be part of the series, Uh, and Catherine, um, your second time in the series, so really, really great to have you along and bring in that uh, continuity of conversation from um, the last time. I'll kick off uh, with you, actually. It's been a couple of years now since FASIA guidelines were handed down and a lot's happened since then in relation to, you know, implementation and regulation of the code and a lot of moving parts in the policy environment. But how do you believe advisors have been kind of adopting and incorporating ethical principles into their practices in that time I think advisors have just been absolute machines trying to incorporate every single one of the standards, the values, and all of the rest of the requirements, obviously, into their businesses. I think they've really been struggling, though, with the logistical side. Mm. So I think they all really understand the the theory, why they're doing it, why they're journeying down that path. Mm. And then it's more on that day-to-day, okay, what does this look like in my business and how can I stay afloat now that I've allocated all of these extra resources to this process? So advisors have been really inspiring with the different creative ways they've been actually incorporating Mm. ethical practices into their businesses. It's It's just been great to watch. It really has been. Any example you want to share with us? I mean, front of mind is, of course, the fee disclosure statements. Yeah. One of my uh, colleagues, I suppose, he, he did a master's with us, but he's a very high-performing financial advisor. He said it took him more than two hours to do uh, one of the fee disclosure statements. Yeah. And you can imagine, so if we bill ourselves out at a normal rate of 400 bucks an hour, yeah. the client doesn't want to receive that disclosure statement of fees along with an $800 bill. Yeah. So, and of course, then it wouldn't adhere to fees being fair and reasonable either. Hmm. So, there's this kind of the logistical challenge, yeah. I think, where we all understand, yes, this is great. Let's do it. Oh, dear, how can we make that happen? And Nadal, from your perspective, is it like similar question, like what are you seeing on the front line with advisors in relation to their ethical incorporation of ethical principles? Yeah, look, uh, I pretty much agree uh, with with Catherine. Uh, on, on face value, uh, majority of advisors, they try to, um, you know, take this on 
uh, and, and we pretty much own it to say, you know, in terms of the application of the code. Uh, look, uh, in fairness to advisors, uh, a lot being thrown of them. I mean, we live in a very heavily regulated industry and trying to deal with everything else and 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 levies and ethic levies and 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 keeping up their, their business afloat and, and everything else. So it must be difficult. The timing has been interesting. If we we, we kind of forget that the code came into effect on the first of January twenty, and what happens in March and April with the beginning of the pandemic. Mm. So it's been the timing's been quite interesting in terms of mm. to get some uh, visibility on this. Uh, but look, I agree with Catherine on face value, the principle of the code and the principle of adopting the code, there is no resistance for advisors that they want to actually act professionally and that's a code of ethics is a part of the profession, part of the parcel. Uh, I don't see resistance to this. As a matter of fact, advisors you know, want to incorporate this into their practices. Uh, I personally yet to see the evidence in terms of how that kind of working in practice. The one thing to note that I'm, I'm noticing, uh, which is great to see, that advisors are kind of trying to increase the level of the awareness of their clients in terms of what they're providing advice on. A lot of advisors are taking on educating their clients um, mm. because, you know, I hear, I, talk, I hear a lot about standards. I hear a lot about standard three and standard seven. Mm. To me, this lever, ever since the standards first came out, first came out the standard four, which is the talking about the free and informed consent, mm -hmm. Uh, because that's going to be critical. Um, not to mention, I've, I've never been a believer to start to look at, at a standard at a time, but just from an educational perspective, trying to ensure the their, their client, not that they haven't done in the past, but try to actually have a, more, have a more of a process around it to ensure the client is on board the advice, because that facilitates a lot of things. When the client understands what advice has been being provided and there is a genuine informed consent here. I mean, a lot of people talk about consent. To me, the more important word, is the free and prior informed consent, mm -hmm. the, the critical. But look, I mean, look, to be to be fair, when it talks about the ethics, I mean, uh, what we keep forgetting, we, we keep talking about standards, but what we don't know, that's the way the code is formulated. It's formulated around the five values and the standards are merely a tools to help achieve the five values. And what makes the values in a code of ethics kind of challenging, not that they are so difficult or they're alien terms to us, but rather the exact opposite. They actually... Uh, things that we all we would like to think that all things we're brought up with and we bring in our, our family and our children uh, to, to up to this value, that trustworthiness, honesty and fairness, etc. Uh, but again, trying to sort of have, oh yeah, I think I'm, I'm trustworthy and I'm honest and I'm fair, but try to bring it down, as to Catherine's point, to bring it down to a practical and integrate mm -hmm. it into your practice. Look, I'm happy to talk more about you know, uh, legal uh, uh, and compliance as opposed to ethics, which you, you cannot apply the same principle. But that's kind of what I'm seeing. So definitely yeah. there is, the intention is there. Time will tell in terms of how they've been actually applied in practice and their success uh, rate of it. Yeah, I mean, do you think part of that is that, you know, that, um, that the regulation of the code of ethics hasn't really... I mean, it, originally it was it was supposed to land with ASIC and then it kind of went to licensees and licensees obviously have quite a lot on their hands. Yep. You know, to your point, it's obviously really, really hard to codify, you know, values, which is obviously what the code tries to do. That, But then at the same time, you know, it in, it in and of itself is, is binding, you know. So, mm. Catherine, I mean, I, I know we've kind of talked about these contradictions in the past, but how are these now playing out that we're, that it's, you know, the rubbers hit the road? Oh, well, one of them you've already touched on, which is the idea that it's the licensee who's in charge of uh, overseeing and, and kind of enforcing this to some extent. If we think about some of the guidance around standard 12, for example, like to me that is the pillar of being a profession is keeping each other accountable mm. and calling each other out, having a, a little chat and saying, look, 
you know, let's let's work together to help you get on the, a better path with this. But the guidance says that, yeah, you have to um, tell the financial licensee, for example, if you think that they have strayed from the code of ethics, which, of course, is a huge conflict of interest because the licensee doesn't want to be dealing with that kind of thing necessarily, even though it's their obligation. And like you said, they've got a lot of other things that they need to be doing. So there's kind of some structural challenges there, I think, that they will be resolved as we go forward. Mm. But at the moment, I little kind of uncertainties, I suppose. And you're kind of saying that advisors are remaining quite pragmatic in the face of this. Um, it may not be resistance, but it's perhaps confusion in a way. Yeah, on the logistical side in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we all have the theory aligned that we're on the right track. This is where we need to go. We need to keep each other accountable. But then when it comes down to what does that look like and how can we make sure we're running our businesses still profitably while we actually put this into effect, I think that's the real challenge. And it's there's huge contradictions there because, of course, a professional's obligation is to the community, and yet the reality is that you can't serve the community unless your business is operating year after year. So there's a continuous challenge within that space. Mm. Um, now, I know you're a positive person and we want to be positive as well on this. And I know you've, in the time that we've spoken last as well, put out a book called Everyday Ethics for Financial Advisors. Talk, talk me through a little bit of background about that and how that's going. Yeah, the first ethics textbook for financial advice. It's, it's pretty exciting. Yeah. And I got an opportunity to write it with Simon Longstaff and Carolyn Tate, and they're just amazing uh, thinkers as, as well as doers. And it's published by the Ethics Centre. It's used in various courses um, on ethics for financial advisors. But, of course, uh, I think probably the main reason anyone buys it in hard copy is to put it on their shelf and look good. <laughs> and so what did you, le- you learn through the process, Catherine? Oh, so much, so much. When you really pull apart every single component, every single one of mm. the values and the huge overlap between them as well, mm. reinforcing some of those common ideas, pulling apart each single one of the standards and figuring out what they look like in practice was was very, very interesting and complicated as well. It was a great opportunity. Nadal, you get to see through the practice of a, of a lot of advi- different advice practices and, um, yeah, really interested in some of the common threads that you see in relation to how they apply the code. Yeah, yeah, look, definitely. And uh, no, no, just to, uh, to Catherine's um, big fan of their text, and we do use their text in, in our, one of our courses at University of New South Wales. So kudos to that and well done. Mate, look, I, 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 I really feel for advisors. And just to Catherine's point, which I totally agree with, you know, there's regulatory fatigue, and, and it's very easy to actually put a code of ethics in front of advisors and tell them, okay, now do it. Um, now, try to sort of uh, regurgitate the terms of the values and the, and the standards. That's not difficult. But try to apply it and, and, and actually integrate it into your practice. That's what's making it hard. Um, although I'm seeing intention, but just generally ethical issues are complex. That's first and foremost. Uh, in professional practices, we deal with areas of uncertainty. And sometimes, um, you know, those, those, those ethical uh, issues that do come out, sometimes they're not tangible. And that's why hindsight bias, sometimes Sometimes they tend to sort of take time. We all can see, you know, the, what led us to the Global Financial Crisis Royal Commission. Um, so, look, I, I continue to see advisors in principle. We keep talking about profession and professional. There's advisors, and, I, I, and let me just take a step back about profession and professional, then, then move on to that, to that point. 
there is no doubt there is overwhelming majority of, of advisors that they, they agree and feel and, 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 and believe that we actually need to be in a profession and, and we need to be part of a profession. Um, and so was those who are actually leading the, the professional associations. What I still feel what's missing here is are we willing to pay the price for a profession? And that's that's the key here. Um, and I'm not don't mean this in any derogatory way. This we all need to make this because uh, you, you know when you talk a profession, talking about transcending and subordination your interests for the benefit of the client, and all that is good and well normally. Like I said, in theory, try to apply it in practice in every element of your practice while you're thinking about running your practice, training your staff now with professional years, etc., for new entrants and mentoring your staff and be able to put food on. You know, I mean, these people are also human beings; they have family they need to put food on the table for their families. Mm. So I still find. Look, it's challenging. I mean, you talk about, you know, is, is it the regulation? Is it that it's, we don't have a single disciplinary body and now we're waiting, obviously, um, uh, for that single disciplinary body to come out so we do not have monitoring uh, body? Um, uh, look, I'm not sure. I, I, I mean, uh, um, still time will tell in terms of how you're going to monitor it. But I, I go back to what Catherine was talking earlier. I'm a big fan of Standard 12 that I find it, and I, I normally call it, it's our fiduciary duty of, you know, our fiduciary duty to our profession, yeah. standard 12. That's how I look at it. And I think until the time we, we can move away from the form, because the form have let us down, let's let's admit it, and start to think about the substance. The form was whether it's talk about disclosure and to, to Catherine's point about fee disclosure statement, all of those things, they tend to do a small part of the job. It's more than happy to discuss this um, as we go on in terms of try to build those ethical thinking, those ethical muscles, build those habits. Habits are generally hard to break, mm. so whether good or bad. So hopefully we can build those, those good habits into their practices. So the intention is there, but just whether they have had, and, 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 and to be fair, you know, living in a one-in-a-hundred-year pandemic and going trying to go through it while you're keeping your practice afloat and regulatory fatigue, I sincerely feel for advisors. There's, there's genuine intention to do the right thing um, in terms of their ability to achieve uh, what's outcome. Like I said, obviously, Time will tell in terms of how things do eventuate, but at least I feel the intention is there that they're really willing to do something about it. Yeah, it's um, and, and it was part of the conversation I had um at um our recent licensee summit with uh, Justice Darrington, who's in charge of the Australian Law Reform Commission's review, um, you know, of um, the Corporations Act in relation to advice, and and her point was along the same lines: be, be careful what you wish for. The, re, the responsibilities of a fiduciary are, you know, challenging to to uphold, and then there's obviously a lot of information overload, a lot of um, business pressures as well. You know, it, it does feel like perhaps some things have been put on hold. I hope that the progression of the ethics practice is one that can continue. Is there any? tips, Catherine, on how they can how they can execute that? I think one of the core things about being a professional is being able to reflect, reflect on ourselves as, as an individual, mm. the journey we've been through to get here, and reflect on ourselves as a node in the profession, I suppose, and really have some kind of deep and honest conversations with ourselves about that and see where, where we're at, what price are we willing to pay as ourselves as individuals because we all have different prices that we'll pay for professionalism. And going back to Nadal's, uh, yeah, great commentary on paying the price versus being a profession, if you think about Standard 12, 
I think about this. I think there's a quote from, it could be from Harry Potter, so bear with me. But, uh, <laughs> First time sure that Harry Potter's ever been quoted on ethics for advisors. So yes, I've achieved something in my life. Um, it says something like, it's one thing to stand up to your enemies. It's another thing entirely to stand up to your friends. Yeah. And I think that's so true. It's Think about it. If one of our peers, if we notice that they really were falling short of what we consider to be uh, the behaviour of a professional, say if it was about a particular standard, the idea that we would then have to pay that price to be a professional in ourselves and have a conversation with that person, which is what a professional would do. They would literally sit down and have a direct conversation about what they think is happening and, of course, offer guidance, offer support, try and help them get back on the right path. But that whole idea, that kind of confrontation, even if it's done in a very professional, gentle, respectful way, Mm. is so such a high price, I think. And I noticed as well in the guidance on Standard 12, it never mentioned that. It said go straight to the licensee or go to Af- to AFCA if there's been damage to the client. Mm. So whereas in the actuary's code of ethics, it says you must discuss it with your peer. Yeah, the, the medical uh, uh, code of ethics is very interesting when, it, when you talk about conflict of interest because there it's mostly about financial conflict of interest and it says things like... Um, you can't act if your financial conflict of interest could maybe impact your ability to exercise your professional judgment or could be perceived to impact um, your professional judgment. So it's, but it's a very soft, soft wording mm. comparison to our code of ethics and the actuary's code of ethics. Yeah, and I, I remember when the code first came out, Standard 3 was obviously the, the headline grabber. Do you think that's still remains or is that somewhat misguided in terms of what um, advisors seem to be getting hung up on? I think advisors still are quite hung up on uh, standard three, also because it's something new to us to think that at a professional level we have to act without conflicts of interest. It's really difficult, in my experience, based on my discussions with advisors, for them to accept that that's that's what's going to happen going forward when the reality is that we exist in a constant quagmire of conflicts of interest in our professional and personal lives. So it's that kind of where do we draw the line challenge I've found. Nadal, what's your experience with that? Yeah, look, I mean, obviously, Standard 3, even even FASIA have actually I don't know, I can't, I can't recall how many positions. And I, f- I feel for them. I mean, obviously, because in, the original position was if there's conflict, they, they were trying to differentiate. They said the law talks about if there's conflict, there is, you know, you accept that the conflict may exist. You try to manage it by disclosing it and ensure the, the client's uh, interest is not being subordinated, if you like. Um, so they've, they said effectively, if there's conflict, walk away. And then they've realized, well, hang on a second, if we're going to apply this to practice, that's going to be quite difficult to apply. Then they came out with something which I thought was smart to say, well, and and this is kind of how I'm talking to advisors about it, to say you need to apply the code, all the standard and holistic. So I always tell them, look, don't straight away look at standard three. Just put standard three aside and try to apply the remaining 11 standards and then come back to standard three. Because if you apply standard one and two and skip standard three for a second and then go five, six and seven all the way to 12 
and then come back to three, I find standard three spirit would be would be effectively complied with. And, and I don't know if I'm sticking my neck out too much because if you're acting in the best interest of the client, because, I, I mean, FASIA came out just because there is some, um, for example, insurance commission coming to you, that doesn't mean that you're breaching the code because effectively that's how the industry operates. But are you providing advice in the best interest of the client? Advising interest the, the best interest of the client, what does that mean? That means the advice is appropriate. You consider the client. You put the client interest first. You've done your research. You ensure that what you've done, everything that you've done is in the best interest of the client. So when you've done all of that, I would have thought that standard three would be satisfied. Um, fundamentally, fundamentally. We'd no, be, I, we'd love I love it. I love it. I mean, it's, I love it when you put your neck uh, out yeah, uh, look, in the down. This yeah. Is, well, mean, this is great. Look, I, mean, I it's I really have, useful interpretation. Yeah. That, but yes. That's really, really <laughs> useful interpretation. Um, but I've always the said conflict of interest is, yeah. yeah, sorry, Matt, but conflict of interest is something difficult because yeah, for yeah. you to actually achieve that professional status and yeah. that ethical status, conflict of interest is something that we have to do, deal with. So that's probably what, what it is, yeah. You know, it, it must definitely be a ma massive challenge because, you know, advisors, you know, are obviously, you know, can be compliance-led and want, you know, definitive answers on things as well. So they make sure that they're within the bounds of the rules. So, you know, having areas I think probably is the most challenging where there's where that, where that has to be thought through and, and, and obviously that's part of, of ethical thinking as well, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I know just also one, one other small point towards, mm. I mean, you've, you've asked for a, for a tip and, and, and my tip yeah. around this, because we, we talked about habits, how habits are generally hard to break and how to, you know, obviously talking about habits and obviously talk about that self-control and self-discipline. A lot of people talk about self-discipline, but self-discipline is very difficult and doesn't always kind of work as intended. If self-discipline work all the time, New Year resolution will work all the time, but they, we all know that they, they don't. So that developing this ethical thinking and developing these habits around it, one tip for, for advisors, because I see a lot of talk about the code and the standards, et cetera, but to me, what's probably just as important is to develop some form of ethical decision-making framework. To Catherine's point, this, this reflection comes into it. So you're, you're having a process that's whenever you come across those ethical dilemmas to say, okay, how are we going to deal with those things by just... Because let's, let's admit it, we all have cognitive biases and rationalisation is one of the biggest blinders for, for all of us, for every one of us. Um, so the, the most common tip, probably two of them, is one, to recognise that we do have our biases and the bi our biases, and I always talk with we and ours because we're all human beings. So it's not, I never talk about to you, to you or to them. It's we all have it. Just to recognise that we have biases that could lead us astray, astray, that sometimes we just need to stop and have a process such as a decision-making framework where you identify, consider, act and reflect, and I'm borrowing the CFA decision-making uh, frameworks, but the reflection is a key. Mm. Um, and that helps building those ethical muscles we're talking about and, and, and those, those good habits. We're going to move on to the ethical scenarios now. Firstly, thanks to listeners and readers of Professional Planner for submitting scenarios that we've used for this series. If you'd like to submit your own ethical scenarios to be in the next series, please do so through the Professional Planner website or email me directly. You can also earn CPD points from this episode. All you have to do is follow the link from the Professional Planner homepage or visit professionalplanner.com.au slash education and answer the questions relevant to the episode. This podcast is proudly brought to you by IOOF Advice, who are committed to delivering leading professional development programs.
So let's put them into into action. Uh, scenario one, a new client joins your firm and you are, are aware that the client may have substantial Centrelink debt due to failure to update Centrelink of their bank account balances. The client is genuinely surprised but wants to avoid Centrelink investigation if possible. How do you advise a client in relation to their Centrelink entitlement and obligations? Uh, let's kick off with you, Catherine. So there's a couple of things here. Um, the first is paying the price, obviously, of being a professional, which means that we, while acting in the client's best interest, we also have to act in the best interest of our profession. No, best interest is probably not the right term, but we have to act considering our profession. So we can't necessarily uh, follow our client's direct instructions on with something like this. If a client says, yeah, you just look, forget about that and move on with the rest, um, we, we can't actually necessarily do that in an ethical sense. So I think that's the first component. Um, I think another component that comes to mind is, of course, our requirement that the clients now need to understand the advice. So not only are we required to disclose in ever-increasingly long statements of advice, but we have to have the client to understand that advice, which is the actual difficult thing. So in this kind of instance, one would hope that through uh, the conversation of actually enabling the client to understand the situation and our obligations to our profession, et cetera, um, that the client would be able to hopefully um, take the ethical path themselves is basically my framework around that. Yeah. And uh, Nadal, what are your thoughts? Yeah, look, there is obviously two ways to it. I totally agree with uh, with Catherine's analogy over how to, to actually break this thing down. There is a couple of ways to look at this this thing, to look at it from, you know, in terms of professional practice approach as well as the ethics approach. So we talked about those standards and how they need to apply in totality and in spirit as well, not just in form. So obviously with standard one, you have an issue here in terms of not breaking the law, not circumventing the law. And I totally agree with Catherine. We have a duty to the profession, but also we have a duty to the to the public interest as well. And tax advisors now, they start to actually de- talk about these things, the tax profession, to say, you know, try to actually advise your client to, to, to actually take advantage of tax loopholes may not exactly be ethical because that's not exactly the public's interest because someone else is paying mm. for those tax benefits. Um, so, so that's number one is obviously from, from an ethical perspective, your client's doing the wrong thing. And, and we talk about partisanship is one of those ethical uh, issues that we tend to fall or those biases that we will fall in. So it's, and, and the other important thing is from a practice, we talk about whether that's uh, also along the line of our, our duty to actually educate the client is, is, is we have an obligation to tell the clients, you know, why what they do in number one may not be exactly appropriate. And also that they need to resolve it. Otherwise this issue can, can get, get bigger. So obviously we have an obligation here to say to the clients that the, the right thing needs to be done mm-hmm. and it's in their best interest to do the right thing. Um, so I always take that and, and, and uh, you know, what's right in professional practice generally tend to sort of go hand in hand, of, um, I hope in most cases, in terms, of, in terms of ethically. So in here, even acting in the best interest of the client, because just, telling, just doing what the client's telling you to do does not always mean that's, that, that's in the best interest of the client. So here there's a clear, obviously, interest in terms of acting in public interest, acting in the, interest of the profession, but also acting in the interest of this particular client because if that, that was to be discovered later, they obviously there will be penalties. They had to pay the money back plus interest, whatever whatever else may be. So uh, definitely, when it comes to these things, there is there is I don't I don't believe there is anything that comes to the point where advisors 
would be encouraged to do anything but the right thing. And if client asks us is doing the wrong thing, to obviously, if, if they can't at a minimum disengage and, and don't obviously uh, decline to provide advice, but probably I, I would say uh, they would have a duty to just educate this particular client about what's the right thing to do. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, look, that's a clear one. Let's go on to number two. Uh, your client is five years from retirement and asks you to provide advice about gearing into shares or property via an SMSF or to reduce their tax um, income, their income tax liability. Your client uh, is a risk taker and their spouse, who is also a client, uh, is far more conservative. You know that they'll probably achieve their retirement goals without the gearing strategy. How do you manage the best interest duty to both clients? Um, now, I'll kick off with you, Nadal, if that's okay. What are your thoughts? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Look, that's a really good question. And and again, I'm going to break it down to two, try to address it from a code of ethics perspective, mm-hmm. but also try to address it from uh, pro- professional practice. And this is where probably we talked about informed consent. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you always see in a couple situations, they always see, you, you see quite often in a couple situation, that's one of them kind of more taking the lead from, you know, making those financial decisions and the other one take a back seat and doesn't say a lot. Yep. Now, it's an obligation of an advisor in this sort of situation that you're getting informed because you're getting embarrassed to agree. So it's important to get the informed consent, yep. that free or prior informed consent from both. So I feel there is definitely an obligation from an advisor perspective to actually deal fairly amongst these two clients, make sure they're both on board uh, of the advice. And also, if you want to talk about acting in the best interest of the client, uh, I don't know what's Catherine's view on risk. My view on risk is you take risk when you have to. You don't take risk just because for the for, for the mm-hmm. sake of it. It's mm-hmm. try to question to say, what is what is the reason we're taking risk? I never say somebody who's five years away from uh, retirement should never enter into gearing strategy. That gearing strategy might be related to a small portfolio that they want to invest for the grandchildren for the next 10, 25 years. And that mm-hmm. may be a valid, valid reason yep. why they want to do it. So that's one, but definitely also from a professional practice approach, you never approach your clients to say, okay, I just need to actually um, somehow agree with and go with this, that, the person, that, the more forceful person who's actually making the decision. That's a very, very dangerous strategy. Mm-hmm. And, and I think advisors generally are pretty good when it comes to things like that. They, they have good intimate relationship with their clients to ensure they bring the birth on board. We always tell them, for example, when you're talking about risk profile, it's not just, you know, okay, who's who's going to win? It's, he, he has a risk profile of X, she has of that. doesn't mean that you go with him or her. Mm-hmm. It's important to bring him. It's a, it's a recommendation for a couple. So it's important from, like I said, from an informed consent perspective, but also from a professional practice perspective. So maybe the, the that's obviously uh, the, the husband in the situation requires more education to say, well, hang on a second, uh, and maybe just to, to sort of uh, ensure that there is a clear understanding in terms of why the strategy is needed to be taken and whether it's a clear purpose of it. And, um, yeah, happily, that's kind of what I'm seeing. Yeah. That's the things that I'm seeing. No, it's uh, and it's worth acknowledging that opposites do attract as well. So maybe uh, quite often sure. it'll be a situation where you have a risk taker along with the, someone who's conservative. I hope Nadal didn't steal all your ideas there, Catherine. Anything you'd uh, no. point out there? Yeah, absolutely. Well... Huh? Um, I'll leave the code of ethics to Nadal. He's touched on that beautifully and the, and the risk component. I would go back to basically just the law because mm-hmm. advisors come across this, I'm sure, every second day. It's the, I want to invest in Bitcoin. Can you help me do it? 
that's that's effectively what's happening here. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the advisor's role is to say, great, well, let's make a meeting. And then in the meeting, it's uh, the fact find. So where are you at? What's your current financial position? Okay. And what are your goals? Excellent. Okay. And now I'll put some strategies together to help you uh, achieve your goals that are appropriate for you based on the information I have on you, mm. about you. Mm. So, um, yeah, there's there's nothing in there that's kind of, uh, client-led, unless one of their goals might be to buy a specific property in a specific suburb, buy their grandparents' property, something specific. It might be that the client is kind of leading what that ultimate advice would look like, but ultimately it's up to the professional to actually use all the information they have to develop recommendations. So I see it exactly as the Bitcoin question. It could well be that the final recommendation from the financial advisor after considering their entire situation and discussing with both the uh, parties, both members of the couple, that that could be the right answer, gearing through an SMSF. It could well be. Um, but I think they have to go through the full process to get to that point first and then then they tick all the boxes on the way there. Hmm. Yeah, anything, anything there, Nadal? Yeah, look, like I said, I mean, I, yeah, look, totally, totally agree uh, with with Catherine. Look, it's important, uh, you know, with with advisors and and advisors generally pretty good when it comes to this because that's kind of those things have been around long before we start to actually have to worry about a code of ethics uh, to consider the the client's overall circumstances. I mean, uh, Catherine's points about Bitcoin, I, I actually put my hand up that I've been actually been wrong on Bitcoin the whole time and I've never invested in it and. Probably sometimes you think whether 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 we should, uh, and that's when sometimes common sense does not prevail, and it helps some people. Um, but look, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, with this thing, you need to take a holistic approach. Uh, I feel like just to consider both elements in terms of what you're trying to achieve for a client. My view always with with risk is you take risk when you have to, not when not because you like to. They need to be a really good reason, but it's critically important, which probably the gist of that particular scenario is you need to bring both clients on board. You never, yeah. because th that's a recipe for, for, for things to go wrong um, generally. Is there any, I mean, not to go down a rabbit warren or too far off script, but I mean, the, the Bitcoin one, it's kind of an interesting one, right? I mean, what if the client suggested they wanted um, to invest in Bitcoin and went on a tear and has, has gone really, really well and, you know, Bitcoin wasn't one of the recommendations you had made based on their circumstances? You know, obviously, that has to be documented, but you, any thoughts around that, Catherine, as, as, you know, in terms of when, if a client comes back and says, well, look what I missed out on? Yeah, the look what I, where I missed out on plays back into that risk story that Nadal was saying. Mm. Our role as advisors is not to get you the best return. <laughs> That's like zero part of our role. Mm. Our role is first off to protect the wealth that you currently have and second to build the wealth um, that you want to have to achieve your goals. So mm. I, I don't see how that could become a discussion point mm. um, unless we hadn't communicated our role correctly. But on, at the, on the other hand, there's many situations where, in fact, I've met people who've asked for recommendations to see a financial advisor because they've suddenly got a lot of money because they did well with Bitcoin by just literally playing mm. with it. Mm. And so there's going to be a lot of advisors who see clients who might not have a huge amount of uh, technical knowledge but have somehow managed um, to achieve uh, an amazing amount of financial success through that one particular investment. So I think it's important that we don't have too much kind of jokey stigma, I suppose, about Bitcoin. Mm. But at the same time, it's not our role to be an expert in every single niche 
uh, investment. We're really kind of asset allocation people, if anything, mm. if you want to talk investments. So any niche uh, thing like uh, which crypto is going to be the one is is not really the role of a financial advisor. And number three and final one, and thanks again so much for all your thoughts and it's been a you know fascinating conversation, which I knew it would be because uh, obviously we've got so much knowledge here on the call today. So thank you so much for that. Final scenario, an aging client is losing capacity and their children contact you for advice about aged care and Centrelink. They provide a 15-year-old power of attorney document that appears legitimate, but you know there has been tension in your client's family over the years and you are unsure about whether to act on that POA. Um, how do you satisfy think yourself that taking instruction from the POA means that you're acting in the best interests of the client and their broader family? So I think uh, Nadal went first last time. So uh, Catherine, it's um, you got first bite of the cherry on this one. I think with this is a really interesting scenario. It's going to be coming up more and more for all advisors as we have an aging population and the trend in Australia is to use the aged care system. Um, very heavily, obviously. It's part of our culture these days. So it's really important. I think I would rest on the financial advisor's skills in asking questions and sitting with uncertainty for quite a few meetings in this case. So I wouldn't necessarily Mm. say black and white, yes, they can rely on the old document. Hopefully Nadal has a different perspective, so it's an interesting conversation. But I would envisage that the financial advisor would spend a lot of time meeting with individuals within the family, uh, potentially even the actual, the ultimate client, if that was possible, depending on what that situation really looked like, and really find out what's going on, document everything, and then come up with their professional judgment on whether they can actually act in the client's best interest by relying on that power of attorney. What are your thoughts, Nadal? Yeah, look, that's an interesting one because I do agree with Catherine. This is something that's going to continue to come up because we are living in Asian population and um, just because of the fact we're all living longer, unfortunately, you get to an age whether and it's different for different people, whether you're 80s or you're 90s or, uh, or beyond, um, that losing capacity and try to define losing capacity. It's, it's, not, it's not a one-size-fits-all. There's a lot of grey area here. Um, that's that's a difficult one. That's definitely a difficult one because you need to try to do two things. Uh, we're in the job of helping people, and it's very easy, um, you know, to say no, just don't do it, walk away. But that's not going to help your clients, and you're not going to feel right about it by simply saying, "Well, look, we can't do it." So I think here it's important to establish where is the uh, where is the law stands for an advisor, and uh, under no circumstances an advisor should put themselves or their practice at risk of breaking the law because things can come back and, and haunt them. And not so much so. We're living in a profession, it's doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Um, if we want to define ethics versus the law, the, the law tells us what we can do, ethics tell us what we should do. Um, so in this sort of situation, I feel, look, I mean, particularly, I mean, and, and I'm bringing my, my little knowledge around power of attorney just dealing for, for, for family members. I know the law has changed in recent time and an all power of attorney with a, with a 15-year-old Again, I'm not. A, I don't have my uh, a legal uh, background uh, to actually to allow me to talk with authority on those sorts of things. So, 15 year one, I would say, um, because there's been some recent regulation came into power of attorney, said so that may not be kind of legitimate to operate. But I think the focus here to say 
to, to get to the bottom in terms of what's the right thing for the client and see what the way the advisor are going to be able to establish that. Uh, I would say under no circumstances do anything that you do that you know it's it's not legal, um, and including the relying on this particular document. But this is going to be a difficult situation, and unfortunately, it's going to be one of those things the advisors would wish never come their ways because it's going to be one of those things they're going to be spending a lot of time on. Mm. Uh, I I can see they can't charge for that time. Mm. But maybe one of those things where you try to sort of things, I know a lot of advisors now talk about pro bono advice and things like that. I know people are going to kind of laugh at me for for, for suggesting something like that, uh, particularly in these difficult times where people are trying to run their practices. But I think it's important to establish what is legal there uh, and just keep 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 an, an eye out for saying, how they're going to try to help the clients by just simply, we should not always overwhelm ourselves just by saying, no, look, this isn't too hard basket. I, I don't want to interfere and just leave the client. I think we do have some, some form of professional obligation to see whether we can assist, uh, but without, without breaking the law. I mean, if you want to overlay uh, uh, it with some ethical principle, if you like, uh, whether we're talking about consequential uh, ethics or, or deontology or virtue ethics, and that's probably a good segue to finish off uh, our discussion on, uh, you know, all of those ethical theories, as probably Catherine, particularly through, through her book, she probably uh, feel in a similar way, they do have their strengths, but do have their limitations in terms of how to deal with them. So from a, from a consequentialism here, you might say, oh, well, look, I'm helping the client out here. But then you need to ask, well, what about if everybody was to do something like this? So I find... In this particular one, yeah, it just it's important to establish where does the law sit. If that 15-year power of attorney is is obviously no longer valid, obviously you can't rely on it. Um, and maybe those advisors, if they feel like they need to sort of help the client, I would say try to establish and do a bit of research in terms of to say, I'm sure these issues do come up on a regular basis, mm. but you, you have a lot of sleepers in your in your case here talking about. Um, some of those issues with the family also that might be brewing, some tension as well. So there's there's a lot of things. So obviously you need to be very vigilant. Uh, really hedging so your bets on this one, Nadal? Think before you act. Look, definitely there's a lot There's a lot there. There's a lot there. Uh, if it was me, I'll try to do, dig in, get a bit more, more information and yeah. try to reach out to some yeah. of those agencies the government have as well to see how can you help a client in those sorts of situations. But I can see there's not going to be a big winner. Advisors are going to be spending a lot of time and not be able to charge for it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, really, uh, really great uh, insight and unpacking there. So thank you uh, so much for that. And thank you both um, for the conversation. It's been great. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ethics and Professionalism podcast. A quick reminder that you can earn CPD points by visiting our website. If you'd like to submit a scenario, please send me an email for a chance to have it featured on an upcoming episode. In the meantime, please keep an eye on our channels to stay updated on future episodes.